We are especially pleased you're here with us today and pray that uh, that you will make and consider Sunset your home. Uh, if you're traveling through and uh, uh, you're just here for a little while, then make Sunset your home away from home. Uh, we're uh, just pleased that you're here and hopefully you've received already a warm welcome and uh, you should receive many more before uh, the morning is done. Uh, let me remind everyone of our barbecue on March 23rd, that's a Saturday, uh, starts at 6 p.m. It'll be outside, out back at the pavilion. Uh, please bring uh, plenty of food. If you can't bring barbecue, then bring one of the sides and then bring a friend. Um, and then if you think about it, bring an appetite. That's the least thing that you want to bring, but the food and the uh, friends are, 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 are uh, also a- extremely important. Uh, so we're looking forward to that day. Uh, let me begin by sharing two stories of rejection. Uh, with you this morning. One is true and one is false. I'm not going to give any uh, a spoiler uh, 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 endings or anything, but if you've seen the movie The Bohemian Rhapsody, there's a scene where uh, Mike Myers makes a cameo appearance, and he's portraying a guy named Ray Foster, who was an EMI executive. Uh, EMI Records was uh, Queen's British recording label. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody is about Freddie Mercury and the band Queen. Well, at one point, they're having a meeting, and Foster refuses to play Bohemian Rhapsody. He refuses to release it as a single. It's a six-minute song. He said, that's not going to work on the radio. No one there in their right mind would ever listen to a six-minute song. And no one would ever, as he says later, bang their heads, which is kind of an interesting little side note, because... Mike Myers did the whole Wayne's World, and they're in the car banging their heads to Bohemian Rhapsody. And so it's just kind of a, I think they did that whole little thing just to get that joke in there. But he says, mark my words, no one will play Queen. And they get mad, they leave the office. Another story goes back to 1995. And this is about a young lady who had written a manuscript for a book, but she was totally unknown. No one had ever heard of her. The story was a bit weird. It had a kind of a weird title. She was living on welfare. This was the first thing that she had really done of significance. It was a children's story. But it was weird because it was kind of a slow-moving plot. And it had, as the villain, this really horrible fat boy And it was just so politically incorrect, and they said no. And then publisher after publisher gave the same response. No, this isn't the book for us. Eventually, she did find a publisher, a little-known publishing house called Bloomsbury. And in June of 1997, J.K. Rowling was able to print and release Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. The next 10 years was a publishing sensation, breaking all the records that they could imagine. Rowling went went from living on welfare to being the world's first billionaire author. She lost her status as billionaire when she gave most of her money away to charity. She remains one of the wealthiest people in the world. She is the UK's best-selling living author. Time named her in 2007 as a runner-up for Person of the Year. 
and you imagine those people and those publishers that lost out on that lucrative deal. Rejection stories. They're all around us. We've lived through some of them. People perhaps might under underestimate us. Or they might underestimate someone that we know. When we come to Jesus and we begin following him, rejection isn't something that we plan on finding on the path. The invitation to follow Jesus starts off with a lot of energy and excitement and we're <laughs> going down the yellow brick road. We're off to see the wizard. And there's a giddiness. If you remember the day you made the decision to be baptized and to follow the Lord. If you remember the emotions of that moment. In addition to the happy emotions, there was, at least in my case, a sense of invincibility. With Jesus on my side. Jesus behind my back. Jesus leading my way. Jesus within me through the Holy Spirit. There's nothing I can't do. There's no foe I can't vanquish. There's no temptation I can't overcome. And yet in Mark chapter 6, we're going to read two rejection stories. A bit different, each one. You might wonder why Mark is putting them together. But we'll try and help unpack that as we go. So if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 6, pull it up on your phone. We'll be reading verses 1 through 29. I'll make a few comments about a couple of specific things that the text mentions. And then uh, we'll, we'll have some talking points uh, that I think uh, will be meaningful. So let's begin reading Mark chapter 6, verses 1 and following. This is from the New Living Translation. Jesus left that part of the country where he was after he had raised Jairus' daughter. He left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in a synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They said, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Now, the text doesn't say he performed the miracles there, but these are people who are wondering about the news about Jesus had spread. And so now they see him in person. He is the hometown kid made good who's come back to visit. Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon and his sisters live right here among us. And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Now, this verse indicates three reasons why they rejected Jesus in his hometown. One was his profession. This is the only time the scriptures actually say that he was a carpenter. Most often refers to him as the son of a carpenter, but it happened in the ancient world and sometimes happens today. Not as much. Uh, you are uh, what your father chose to do. And so you follow in that tradition. So he was a carpenter, but that's a kind of a dirty job. Carpenter in the ancient days was more than just working with wood. They worked with stone. They did remodeling. They did. It was a dirty job. You worked with hands. Jesus would have had calluses on his hands. He would have been darkened by the sun for all the work that he did outside. And so this wasn't the kind of job that a well 
uh, respected rabbi would do. So he was a blue-collar worker. That's one thing. And then he was the son of Mary. Now, we know that to be a true fact. But what we might not know is in the ancient world, you almost always referred to people by who their father was. The respectable thing would have been to have called him the son of Joseph. Even if Joseph would have passed away by now, even if he was dead, he was still the son of Joseph. He was still his father's son. But calling him the son of Mary helped bring up that whole situation about who's his daddy and where did he come from? And, oh, remember how Mary got pregnant before they got married? And so to call him the son of Mary would have been a slur and it would have been a... Uh, uh, um, a kind of a nod towards, yeah, we, we know the story about how you came about. We know that, you know, your mom was not the best kind of person. She slept with Joseph. And so you are an illegitimate child. We, we know that. You're the son of Mary. And then the last thing is that, well, we know your family. They're from here. That familiarity. You know, no one would have said, if they would have interviewed him after Jesus made it big, I always knew he was going to be something. <laughs> I always knew he had it in him to be the Messiah. No, there was nobody saying that. He was just Jesus the carpenter. And for him to come back and tell them what they should do, to read with authority the scriptures, was just a bit much. And I said, no, we're not buying it. We're not having it. And we refuse to believe. Then Jesus told him the parable that fits this situation very well. A prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown and among his relatives and among his own family. You know, it would be one thing for, and, and I love all of you dearly, and so please understand what I'm saying. It would be one thing for one of you to say, yeah, Jim, you know, I don't like you so much. All right, that might sting. Well, depending on who it is. Uh, no, it would sting. But if my wife said, you know, Jim, I don't like you so much. Wow, that's that's deep. That's a heart wound. Well, Jesus says, yeah, I don't expect you to like me because no prophet is accepted and honored in his hometown, city of Nazareth, among his relatives, extended family, and even among his own family. So Jesus goes from there. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to and this is such, uh, 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 I mean, this, this is something you'd only find in the scripture. He couldn't do anything really useful except heal a couple people and, uh, and cast out a couple demons and, and do those kinds of things. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Scriptures tell us a couple times when Jesus is amazed at someone's belief, but here he's amazed at their unbelief. And then Jesus went from village to village teaching the people. He called his 12 disciples, the apostles together, and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. This is a mission trip. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals 
but not to take a change of clothes. Seems kind of like a strange list if you're going on a trip. What is interesting is that those four items that they were to take, a staff or a walking stick, sandals, their clothes that they are wearing, and the belt that they would use to put around their waist, were the same four things that God instructed the Israelites when he was about to free them from Egypt and lead them through the desert to the promised land. Four things. The staff, cloak, belt, and sandals. Interesting. We'll come back to that. Wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house until you leave town. But if any place refuses to welcome you, already anticipating some rejection, if any place refuses to welcome you or to listen to you, shake the dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. Well, here he's telling them to (laughs) don't move into a place. And then if you hear of a better offer down the street that they have a, a, a satellite TV and they have more channels, then switch to that house. He's saying, find a place, preach out of that base. And the whole tenor is, this is a mission for God. You're not here on a pleasure walk. You're not here on a cruise. You're not here to find the most accommodating and luxurious and pleasureful experiences. You're on a mission. And anything that detracts you and distracts you from that mission, you need to be careful of. And you're going to run into some people who don't really particularly care to hear what you say. And so, as was common for the religious, pious Jews, when they returned from pagan country, they would shake their shoes or sandals and their clothes off before entering into the uh, Israelite land and get rid of all the negative influence as it were, and leave that behind. That's what he instructs his disciples, his apostles to do. So the disciples went out, telling everyone they met. Their message was, repent of their sins and turn to God. They cast out many demons, healed many sick, anointing them with olive oil. They were successful in their journey. Herod Antipas, the king, he wasn't really the king, but he's referred to and he wanted to be the king. Herod Antipas, the king, soon heard about Jesus because everyone was talking about him. Some were saying, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. This is why he can do miracles. Others said he's the prophet Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet like the other great prophets of the past. When Herod heard about Jesus, he said, John The man I beheaded has come back from the dead. And that is the introduction into one of the very few stories in the Gospels that really don't have to do with Jesus. Jesus is the hero of every story. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. But here, this story that Mark is going to flash back to and bring up for us, uh, something that's already happened, Mark has chosen to tell it 
in this particular context for a specific reason. And this is the story. For Herod, Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. Now, in today's world, but even so in the ancient world, marrying your sister-in-law is not looked upon in a very, very positive way. There were actually specific commands about doing that. This isn't talking about if your sister-in-law is a widow, but she was still married, and Herod decided, well, I like her more than I like my current wife, and I'm going to switch. Well, when she did that, and when Herod did that, John had been telling Herod, it's against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias, the wife, bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but was without Herod's approval. But without Herod's approval, she was powerless. For, for Herod respected John, knowing that he was a good and holy man. He protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. It's kind of a, a weird scenario, isn't it? Where he likes to listen, but when John speaks, I really don't like what he says, but I really like to listen. <laughs> we'll come back to that, too. Herodias's chance finally came on Herod's birthday. He gave a party for his high government officials, army officers, and the leading citizens of Galilee. Then his daughter, also named Herodias, came in and performed a dance that greatly pleased Herod and his guests. Seems to suggest a lascivious, sensual dance. Doesn't necessarily have to be so. But since he enjoyed the performance, ask me anything you like, the king said to the girl, and I will give it to you. He even vowed, which he didn't have authority to do, he vowed, I will give you whatever you ask up to half of my kingdom. She went out and asked her mom, wow, <laughs> this is the genie in the bottle. What should we ask for? Summer home, updated palace. Her mother said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the girl, her girl hurried back to the king and told him, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a tray. Then the king deeply regretted what he had said, but because of the vows he had made in front of his guests, he couldn't refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner to the prison to cut off John's head and bring it to him on a platter. The soldiers beheaded John in the prison, brought his head and gave it to the girl who took it to her mother. When John's disciples heard what had happened, they came to get his body and buried it in a tomb. Now, as I said, that happened prior to this particular incident of Jesus being rejected in Nazareth and then sending out the twelve. Well, we talked last week about how Mark likes to bracket or sandwich ideas, and he organizes them in a way to make maximum effect and so there's a connecting theme to these three stories. The rejection of Jesus in Nazareth, the sending out of the disciples, and then the rejection of John the Baptist. 
And the overall picture that he's presenting is when you follow Jesus, it might come at a cost. If you follow Jesus, you will be rejected by somebody at some point. It might be your hometown. It might be your relatives. It might be your very own family. Following Jesus is not this wonderful skipping, uh, 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 a skip through the forest or skip through the park. Mark is writing to Christians in Rome about 30 years after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. He's writing to individuals who are wondering, why is this happening to us? Why does the Roman government hate us so much? Why are they trying to kill us at every turn? And part of what Mark is doing is simply pointing out that, you know, this happened to Jesus too. You're following after one who was also rejected by the people that loved him the most or should have loved him the most. You're following one who was rejected by the very officials that were set to somehow protect and uh, 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 watch over our society and community. We are following in the paths of one who lost everything for the sake of the kingdom. And so if we choose to follow Jesus as the listeners and the audience of Mark's gospel and as we have done, there will be rejection. And that's a scary thought. Because rejection hurts. And in fact, it hurts physically. There was a science, uh, there was a, a series of tests done that when you are rejected, they did brain imaging studies, and shows that when you are rejected, or what they did was they brought in people with pictures of a, a former uh, uh, um, uh, girlfriend, boyfriend. What was affected in the brain is the same place where if you get punched in the gut, that same place in your brain lights up. When someone hurts you, states Matt Lieberman, social psychologist at the University of California, says when someone hurts your feelings, it really does hurt you physically. So when we talk about things like a broken heart or hurt feelings, it's actually true physiologically. That's how we respond. And when we know that's what it feels like, that if I say something to this person, if I do something, they are going to reject me. Since I want to avoid pain at pretty much any cost, then I'm going to avoid doing whatever it is that's going to make you reject me. But Jesus doesn't waver. He didn't waver from his mission. He stayed true to his course. Once he was rejected in Nazareth, he turns around and continues to do the same thing he was doing before. Preaching and teaching in all the villages. And I think that's part of the challenge for us is if I know after I've shared with someone the faith 
or I tell them that I'm a Christian, or I point out that their behavior is not very uh, uh, socially accepted, and they blow up at me, then the next time I see them do that, I have to wait. Do I really want to go through this again? <laughs> I know how it felt. And maybe it was my boss. Maybe it was my coworker. Maybe it was a family member. Maybe it was my neighbor. And I'm going to have to see these people again. And so the, the, the temptation is, is to change our message or to change our focus or to change our action so that we avoid getting them upset and we avoid being rejected. And what we see Jesus doing and what he's then immediately sends his disciples out to do is to stay the course. If it's the right thing, if it's true, if it is what the kingdom is about, then stay the course. Don't overreact. Sometimes that happens. Do you remember that time when uh, the disciples wanted to bring down fire from heaven to eradicate this little town of Samaritans that didn't want to accept Jesus? They said, oh, yeah, you don't want to accept our master. We'll show you. Jesus didn't let them do that. But sometimes we overreact. But what Jesus does is stay the course. He doesn't get emotional. He doesn't throw a tender tantrum. He doesn't point out how uh, idiotic their actions might have been, how irrational their actions might have been. He doesn't point out that you're just like that publisher that turned down J.K. Rowling's book. But neither does he encourage his disciples to bring the rejection home with them. Shake the dust off. Not in your face, but shake it off. Leave it there. Don't bring it into your house. You know, one of the challenges for all of us in a place like Miami with traffic, with, uh, with tension, with different kinds of things is to leave all of that outside the door of our home. It's hard not to carry that with us. It's hard not to remember what this person or that person did. But the admonition to shake the dust off, leave it there, don't bring it with you. And for sure, don't bring it into your home where your children and your spouse really had nothing to do with it. So we enter into this walk of following Jesus a little bit woken up. Because it's not a pleasure cruise. It will involve rejection. Our temptation is to overreact and, 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 and open up a whole bunch of junk on these people. And Jesus doesn't encourage that. But rather he says, just take it in stride. This is part of what life looks like in the kingdom. And, and you know, I guess it gets down to making sure that if we are rejected, that we're being rejected for the right reasons. Because, you know, I don't think there's any jewels in our crown if we're rejected for being obnoxious jerks. <laughs> there's no glory in that. There's no glory in being bigoted or being extremist in our attitudes. The message that John proclaimed was repent and prepare for the coming kingdom. 
the message that Jesus proclaimed, his very first public proclamation in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. And when the apostles go out here in Mark chapter 6, they also say the same thing. Repent. Change your life and get ready to enter into the kingdom. And so the idea of preaching repentance is something that's fundamental to who we are as Christians. Because we understand that our values are not the same as the values of the world. And our message to our friends, family, within the people within our circle of influence is to stop the negative behavior. Stop the hurtful behavior, hurtful to yourself, hurtful to other people, and begin a life that will honor God. But that doesn't give us the right to be jerks about it. And unfortunately, it doesn't give us the right to just pick and choose what our personal hobbies are and what we think is really important. But we are guided by what Scripture says, and where Scripture speaks, then we would speak and follow its example. So there are a lot of things that some Christians are really worked up about that perhaps aren't as important in the text as they might believe. The last thing is that following Jesus means that you're following him to the cross and beyond. Our grandson's, one of our grandson's favorite toys is Buzz Lightyear. And I don't know if the creators of the slogans for that doll and that character were based in scripture, but, uh, Jesus takes us to infinity and beyond. <laughs> but getting there is the challenge. You know, the destination of your trip or your journey determines what you pack. If you're going up to New York anytime soon, you want a different set of clothes than if you're going to Punta Cana, Dominican Republic. Our destination determines what we take. And I think Jesus, as he guides his disciples in what they should take on this journey, I think he's pointing his disciples back to those original Israelites and saying, you're on a journey from slavery to freedom. You're on a journey from Egypt to the promised land. And that journey is going to take you through the desert. But I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to walk with you. And I'm going to provide for you. And afterwards they would say, at no point did the shirt on our back ever disintegrate. Or did our shoes ever wear out. Or did we ever lack for food. And so as we approach this journey of following Jesus, it is costly. It will cost us friends, family, co-workers. It will cost us our reputation. It will cost us our comfort. But we take heart in knowing that God's with us every step of the way and that he is providing what we need for that journey. So the real challenging part in this is not just thinking about being rejected by others. I think the real challenge is that sometimes we're the ones who are doing the rejecting. 
Because I think we're all a little bit like Herod. We like to listen. But action is a different thing. Like Herod, we don't want to repent. We're afraid of losing everything. We want other people, other people to think we're awesome and awesome and we're afraid that they won't. And so when we leave church, we put away our Bibles and we disappear into culture, to society. And the call to us today is one, when you are rejected, know who you're following. And your election by Jesus and your relationship with Jesus will guide you through. Uh, But then the other thing is, don't be like Herod and and reject the word and reject repentance. You know, sometimes I've met with people who feel like they've gone too far. I just, God can't bring me back. And that's not true. At any point, we can return back to God and surrender and find forgiveness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. We all know, I think, what's in our life that we need to repent of. If you need help thinking through that, talk with one of the elders or myself, one of the ministers. And you know, that whole thing that if you don't repent right now, you might have a car accident, you never know what's going to happen. The probabilities of that are minor, but it has happened, even to those in our family here. But you know, I think a greater temptation is that we'll get to a point where it's hard to listen and we won't want to hear anymore. And so we'll either stop up our ears or we'll just stop coming. And that, I think, is a greater danger for the majority of all of us, myself included. So so hear the word. You will experience rejection, but it's not the end of the world. Jesus experienced rejection by his very own family. And he went on to serve God's purposes and to be the stellar Messiah that he set out to be. And then if you find yourself in a situation where you're hearing something and you're hearing a word and that word is dwelling on your heart and you know, I really need to give this up. I really need to change that. I really need to stop doing that. Then hear the word. And don't be like Herod. He liked to listen, but he didn't want to act. Don't be afraid if people reject you. You're in good company. Jesus, John the Baptist, the apostles. It might cost you something, but at the end of the day, that's what it'll take to get you to the promised land. If there's a way we can pray with you and for you, If there's something that you're struggling with that we here as a church family can come alongside you, uh, we would be honored to do so. Our brother Paul Schwepp is going to come and uh, he'll be willing and he is able to uh, to pray for you this morning. Let's all stand and sing.